the battle for Japan. Most had seen very little action before they reached the Far East. Their baptism of fire came in January 1945, in a daylight attack on Japanese oil installations at Palembang in Sumatra. It was one hell of a debut. The British crews took such a pounding, one historian has since observed that their losses would have even made Bomber Command flinch. Then, three months later, as the war in Europe was ending, the carrier flyers were tasked with stopping the kamikaze planes targeting the American marines as they fought to take the island of Okinawa. Wave after wave of suicide planes attacked the Allied fleet, and over the following two months, every single British aircraft carrier on the front line was hit. Hunting down these fanatical flyers before they attacked the fleet became a game of cat and mouse. The tactics books used in the previous six years of war were ripped up. Perhaps the most intense period for many Allied aircrew came in the last five weeks of the war, in July and August 1945, when British and American carriers roamed up and down the coast of mainland Japan in one giant fleet, launching hundreds of bombing raids and strafing missions to soften up the already battered country. The airmen knew nothing of the atomic bombs over Nagasaki and Hiroshima that would end the war so rapidly. For them, there was a sense their missions were intensifying, and the battle for Japan was imminent. These last few weeks of the war were defined by an absence of aerial combat. Dogfights were almost non-existent, and it later emerged the Japanese were hiding up to 10,000 aircraft for a mass kamikaze attack, should the Allies have invaded. In fact, in the last month of operations, just one British aircraft was shot down in a dogfight, in the last minutes of the war, with tragic consequences. Instead, it was anti-aircraft fire from the ground that became the menace. In a series of daylight strikes, pilots took off from their carriers and flew across the coast of Japan, skimming over the roofs and treetops at 300 miles per hour to bomb targets sometimes defended by up to 180 anti-aircraft guns. It took nerves of steel to fly so fast at just 30 feet above the ground, but it was the best way to avoid being blasted out of the sky. Those who didn't paid the price, living with the constant knowledge that if they were shot down and captured, torture or execution would almost certainly follow. The general sensation of being over Japan was one of foreboding, deep fear. We had heard tales of what the locals did to airmen who got hacked down, said one airman. Despite being held prisoner for just two weeks, one captured flyer still lost two stone, and it took him over half a century before he could get into a Japanese-made motor car. The captains of the Royal Navy carriers were forced to write a steady stream of condolence letters to the families of lost airmen. By now you will have heard from the Admiralty the tragic news that your son is missing, believed killed, wrote Philip Ruckkeen the captain of Formidable, in a letter dated the 15th of August 1945, the day the war ended, to the mother of a 22-year-old fighter pilot from London. I must prepare you for the fact that there is little hope of his survival, as he was shot down over Japan. The tragedy is all the more terrible, as it was so near the end. Please accept the sympathy of myself, his squadron, and the ship's company in your grief. Your son had been with me a long time and was not only one of the best and steadfast of all the pilots, but he was one of the most beloved by all his brother pilots and the ship. 
Between the 17th of July and the 15th of August, in the final ten days of operations over Japan, 34 Royal Navy airmen were killed, a per-head casualty rate nearly 50% higher than those of the Americans flying alongside them. One of the most abiding features of the British war in the Pacific was American dominance. Three-quarters of the British squadrons flew American aircraft leased to the Royal Navy, replacing the antiquated British-built aircraft used earlier in the war, which were largely unsuited to carrier work. The Corsair, a fighter nicknamed Whistling Death by the Japanese, looked so terrifying with its reptilian wings and long snout that when one British pilot first set eyes on this wicked-looking bastard, he promptly rushed off to write his last will and testament. By 1945, almost half of all Royal Navy airmen had been trained in America. They had a transatlantic twang in their voices, chewed gum and talked of the American sweethearts they'd left behind.